there as we come to this passage this morning and as we think about this coming of our Savior, the rapture, Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts out in affection to you. I pray that we would clearly understand your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to just clearly explain these truths and then your Holy Spirit, please take them and impress them upon our hearts. We pray that you would sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. And we pray this together in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in 1970, a book was published that took the evangelical world by storm. The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey raptured the attention of the church. I'm sure many of you are aware of this book. Ten years after this book came out, the New York Times would call it a best, the best-selling nonfiction book of the 70s. Today, it's really hard to imagine a book on the fulfillment of biblical pro- prophecy capturing the nation's interest and attention for an entire decade like this. It would seem impossible for a Christian book to do such a thing today, but Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth did certainly that. This book took big biblical prophecies and linked them to modern events in human history, like the founding of the modern state of Israel. The book followed a the- the theological scheme known as classic dispensationalism, and it included a pre-tribulational rapture leading up to the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. In 1978, a narrated dramatization of the film was also released into theaters. And it would be no understatement to say that the book and the movie had a significant impact on the American Christian mind. The problem was that the impact was not always biblical. Hal Lindsey himself infamously predicted that Christ would return and that the church would be raptured by the end of the 80s. And predictions regarding Christ's return, as you know, never turn out well. And in Lindsay's work, superficial exegesis led to fanciful claims. Others also seem to sort of capitalize on this excitement with more toned-down versions of Lindsay's eschatology. To give one example, one that was more common in my generation, is the Left Behind series written by Tim LaHaye and Terry Jenkins a series of novels that depict the end of the earth, the first of which was published in 1995. Both the late great planet Earth and the Left Behind series featured prominently the rapture of the church. And both of these works had a tremendous impact on Christian laity. And by the turn of the century, it would be my estimation that the vast majority of Christians in America held to some form of a pre-tribulational rapture scheme. However, over the last two decades, Christians in the scholarly community have increasingly rejected such an idea. Today, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism is the minority view among theologians. That is the view that Christ will return before the tribulation. I've been in many theological circles and conversations where the idea of sincerely holding to a pre-tribulational rapture is considered to be frankly laughable. And there's really no end to the jokes that come about from 
so-called building one's theology from Hal Lindsey or from the Left Behind series. It seems that among the scholarly community today, there was a significant counter-swing from the wild speculative beliefs promulgated by people like Hal Lindsey. Therefore, the pendulum has swung significantly to the other side. And over time, more and more Christians are rejecting pre-tribulational premillennialism. However, whatever popular beliefs may be in a given day, we must be committed to believing what the scriptures teach, which means we can never afford to be superficial in our Bible reading and in our Bible exegesis. We must practice 2 Timothy 2.15, which says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who accurately handles the word of truth. That's my responsibility, and that's your responsibility. And so this morning, we come to the subject of the rapture. And you've probably met some Christians who love to talk about the rapture. And you've probably met other Christians who claim not to believe in it at all. But in the passage that we come to today, this event that we call the rapture is an undeniable fact. Every faithful Bible interpreter and every faithful Bible reader must acknowledge that one day the disciples of Jesus Christ will be raptured. The rapture is undeniably clear in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with his shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So on a future day, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ will be snatched up in the air to meet the Lord. This reality is so clear in this passage that all faithful Christians believe this truth. As one commentator has written, the blessed prospect of the rapture, as described in 1 Thessalonians 4, may rightly be called the pole star of the Christian church, meaning a focal point that we all look towards and hope for. The reality of a future rapture is the focal point of our future hope. These verses contain precious revelation that have brought comfort and cheer to believers down through the ages of the church. But the preciousness of this truth has naturally led many to consider when will this event occur in relation to the tribulation period. That is the seven-year period where God pours out wrath upon the earth. Today, among Christians, there is no agreement on the timing of the rapture. Hear me say that. There is no agreement. And the disagreement really begins at the point in which we're in the air, where we go from there. That's where the disagreement begins. Verse 14 informs us that we will be brought by God with Christ to somewhere. That is clear. We will not stay in the air. We will go somewhere. Those who are raptured up to meet the Lord will be escorted by Christ somewhere. And broadly speaking, there are three different positions advocated for. And each of which are held by godly, diligent Bible readers and Bible students. Solid, gospel-preaching, Bible-loving Christians disagree on these things. And as I mentioned last week, 
The reality is that in these verses that we come to today, it, they do not inform us about the ultimate timing of when these things will occur. We have to look outside of this passage if we're going to answer that question. We know that we'll meet the Lord in the air, but where we're going after that is left unstated in this passage. Paul wrote with great clarity to reveal the truth of the rapture. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul could have easily outlined from there where we will go next, what will happen after the rapture, but he did not do that. And therefore, that can't be our main goal as we come to this text. Nonetheless, we might be helped if we simply stated the three main views this morning as we get started. And the first is this. It's called the pre-tribulational view of the rapture. That is that the church will be raptured in its entirety and removed from the earth's scene and then escorted back to heaven before any of the great tribulation period is unleashed upon the earth. And this could happen at any moment. The timing is intimate and believers should be prepared for it. That's the pre-trib view. The mid-trib view says that the, the rapture will come at the midpoint of that seven-year tribulation period. At the end of the first three and a half years, that is the 70th week of Daniel chapter 9, if you're familiar with Daniel, the church will be raptured before the outpouring of God's wrath gets incredibly intense upon the earth. That's the mid-trib view. And then finally is the post-tribulational view. And this view holds that the church will remain on the earth during the entire tribulation. The, the tribulation will conclude with the return of Christ. And when the church is raptured up into the air, then after meeting the Lord in the air, the church will return and come back to the earth with Christ. In this view, some prophetic events must occur before the rapture can take place. But I like to think of this in terms of a U-turn. No matter which view you take, someone is making a U-turn. Think about this. In the, in the pre-trib and mid-trib view, Christ descends from heaven. He sort of picks up the church. Then he makes a U-turn and goes back up to heaven. In the post-trib view, the church is raptured. But here the church makes the U-turn and they come straight back down to the earth. That's the post-trib view. And as a church, the position we believe that has the most biblical support is the pre-tribulational position. We believe that scriptures generally lead one to believe that Christ could return at any moment. The rapture could happen at any moment. Furthermore, we believe that the church will be spared from the wrath that is to come in that tribulation period. This is what's specifically stated in Revelation 3.10. Jesus tells the faithful church in Philadelphia because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is to come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. So, so for these reasons and several other reasons, this is the stated position of our church, but it is something that we are quick to acknowledge that there are good and godly men and women on all sides of this debate. But again, this will not be our focus today. There will be no eschatological charts and timelines. I'm sorry to disappoint. This morning, we are centering in on where there is no debate, and that is the rapture itself. 
which is the topic that Paul addresses in this passage. Because this was the, this was the concern on the heart of the Thessalonian church. And the church in Thessalonica was full of new converts to Christianity. And Paul and Silas had spent time developing them and, and teaching them about the things of the Lord. And those who came to Christ, who were then followed Christ's command and were baptized, and then they were catechized or instructed in the faith. And from what we gather in this letter, the church was maturing rapidly under Paul's teaching when Paul was abruptly expelled from the city. And he had taught them about the resurrection of the body. He had taught them about the return of Christ and many other things. Therefore, the church was hopeful that Christ would return in their own lifetime before they passed away. But then some of their beloved church members began to pass away. The church became fearful that their dead brothers and sisters in Christ would somehow miss out on Christ's return. They would miss it when Christ came back. That was their fear. These Thessalonian Christians were so eager for the return of Christ that they were fearful that those who died would miss it. And consequently, they began to grieve like the pagans around them who had no hope in the face of death. They were uninformed and ignorant about these things. So Paul wrote here this passage to set the record straight. Paul wrote to the church to explain that those who die in Christ will be equal participants in the return of Christ. But Paul really wrote to give them hope in the face of death. So God inspired the Apostle Paul to write this portion of Holy Scripture so that we would be fully informed about the future of those who die in Christ. Verses 14 through 17 really provide reasons for this hope. In verse 14, Paul argues that the resurrection of Christ not only guarantees our future resurrection, but it also guarantees our futurely future bodily presence with Christ. Through faith in Christ, the forgiven sinner is so fundamentally united with Christ that Paul could guarantee in the future when we are resurrected, we will immediately be with Christ. That is verse 14. And in verse 15, Paul then continues building hope, building logic, putting logic together to give hope to the people. And this is how the rest of the section unfolds. Verse, in verse 15, Paul provides a second reason for, for hope regarding those who die in Christ. And in verse 15, he sort of gives a proposition. Then in verses 16 and 17, Paul supports that proposition. And in the second half of verse 17, Paul then reiterates the results that will come about. And finally, he pulls everything together with the concluding exhortation in verse 18. So if you're a note taker this morning, I'm calling it first the equality of Christ's return in verse 15 and then the drama of Christ's return in 16 and 17, followed by the result of Christ's return and then finally the exhortation in light of Christ's return. So let's look at these together. The first is this, the equality of Christ's return. Look with your Bibles at, at verse 15 with me. It says this, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen 
asleep. So here Paul launches out in his argument. And he does so by citing a resource here. And to strengthen his own argument, he cites the Lord Jesus himself. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. And normally when Paul uses this phrase, the word of the Lord, he's referring to the, the gospel message itself. He uses it this way in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. But here he's doing something different. And most likely, he's referring to a prophetic revelation that was given to him directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. As an apostle, God spoke directly to Paul. He revealed truth to Paul. The Lord Jesus revealed divine truth directly to Paul. We know this. Obviously, if I were to make the claim today and preface it by saying, Jesus told me this, or the Lord told me this, this is the word of the Lord, then we're all in trouble because I am not an apostle or a prophet. But Paul was. He was an apostle. He's quoting truth that he received directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing here. And it seems like he's doing this for the reason of adding additional authority to his words. Paul referenced Jesus' teaching on the matter to sort of buttress his authority. And so if you're seeking to give clarity about the return of the Lord Jesus, which Paul is doing, citing a word from the Lord is really cannot be topped. This is the ultimate authority. And so here's Paul's preposition. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The subject here of Paul's statement is those who are alive and remain. Those are people who are living when Christ returns. Christians who are alive when Christ comes back. And notice that Paul includes himself in that category. He says, we who are alive and remain. And this suggests that Paul thought it was quite possible that Christ might return in his own lifetime. But according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10, it seems that Paul also knew it was, it was possible that he might sleep in death before Christ's return. But at any rate here, Paul emphatically declares, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This is the strongest form of negation that Paul has available to him in the Greek language. Paul uses this construction only four other times in his letters. For example, in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul vowed to certainly never eat meat again if it caused his brother to sin. And in Galatians 5.16, Paul made the point that those who walk by the Spirit will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. And then later in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, Paul adamantly declares that those who reject Christ will certainly not escape the wrath of God. So as emphatic as Paul is about those other things, he's equally emphatic here that believers who are alive at the return of Christ will have no advantage over those who have already died in Christ. In other words, Paul assures them that there will be an equality among all of God's people on that day. There will be no temporal benefit for the living that they will enjoy that those who have died will miss out on. And in a sense, Christ is sort of an equal opportunity returner. On that day, there will be no elite class or elite status. Christ is not prejudiced against those who are dead. The return of Christ is a privilege that we will all enjoy equally 
no matter when you die. This is the equality of the day of the Lord, of this day, of the return of Christ. And to develop this point further, Paul in verse 16 gives more specifics, continuing really to paraphrase the word of the Lord that he had received. And here Paul gives wonderful details about the rapture and the return of Christ, detail that is really unparalleled anywhere else in Scripture. If one wanted to write a term paper on the rapture, you would go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This would be your primary source. And because of the wonders of the details of this passage, I'm calling this second point the drama of Christ's return. A drama in the sense of a real-life performance that will one day unfold on the future day that Christ returns. And the drama really unfolds in three scenes or three acts. Look again at verse 16 in your Bible. Here's act one. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Act two, the dead in Christ will rise first. Act three, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So let's consider this first act. It's it's the Lord descends. Act one, the Lord descends. And Paul emphasizes here that it's the Lord himself will descend. And, And why does he do that? Well, I think it's because he wants us to know that it will not be any proxy of Christ on that day. It will be no deputy angel that comes down to fetch the church. It will be Christ himself who returns. And he will not come in secret On that future glorious day, Christ will not be in stealth mode. How do we notice that? How do we know that? Well, consider these three noises that accompany Paul. First, he will come with a shout. Then the voice of an angel. And the blast, finally, of a trumpet. So first here, Christ will descend with a shout, the Bible says. The literal word here is a shout of command. This term was commonly used in a military setting for an officer to command his troops. It was also used of a hunter commanding or sort of barking orders to his hunting dogs. It was used of of a boat captain shouting orders, mandatory orders to his rowers. That's what this word is. It's a shout of command. It it refers to an authoritative cry given at a time of great importance or urgency. And so we ask, well, who issues this shout? Who who makes this shout? Well, some have argued based upon the following reference to an archangel that it's the angel who will make this shout. But based upon John 5, it seems most likely that this shout is coming from Christ himself. In John 5.25, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then later in verse 28, Jesus adds, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. So putting these two texts together, with, and then with this repeated preposition, with, it seems unquestionable in my mind that this is the shout of Jesus himself. So when Christ appears, he will awaken dead bodies with a shout. I suspect that this will be an earth-shattering cry from our Lord, a shout that will drown out every other sound on the earth. 
A shout that will stop all living men dead in their tracks. A shout that immediately startles every living creature on the face of the earth. I think of the chatter of the birds ceasing. Even great whales in the deep of the sea taking notice at this great sound. Every man will shift his attention to the sky. I think of this as sort of like trying to go to sleep at your house on July 4th. As soon as it gets dark and you drift off to sleep, what happens? A massive firework blows up outside of your house, an explosion in the sky, wakening you from your sleep. This will be what this is like. It's just an earth-shattering, dead, dead-awakening shout from our Lord. But this won't be the only sound on that day. There will also be the voice of an archangel. There's only one archangel mentioned in Scripture. He goes by the name of Michael. He's referred to in Jude 9. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, there's a, there's a ruling angel referred to, a prince angel. Perhaps that is Michael as well. Or perhaps there is a class of archangels. Some ancient Jewish writers held that there were seven archangels. They had names for them even. Uh, but ultimately, we cannot say this, but we can say that this is a high class of ruling angel who will make a noise on that day. Uh, the voice of the archangel will also accompany the Lord's descent. We do not know what he will say, but that angel will be making noise. We will hear his voice. And third, the Lord will descend with the trumpet blast of God. As our version reads this or puts this, it might give the impression that Jesus will simply descend with a trumpet in hand or something like that. But that's not the idea here. The term here is not merely re referencing a musical instrument of a trumpet, but it's literally referring to the noise that is made by the trumpet. This is the trumpet blast. In antiquity, the trumpet was rarely used in musical settings. Instead, it sort of functioned as a sign, or a sign or a signal in battle. It was used even in athletic games or even in religious ceremonies. And this is what it is doing here. The trumpet blast of God is a call to order. It's a call to attention. And when we consider these three noises that are occurring with our Lord's descent, all I can, con 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 um, all I can conclude here is that the rapture itself will be no silent affair. This will be a very noisy day in that sense. This will be no tempest in a teapot. You will know about it. This will make us all aware when Christ returns. This, when this threefold summons goes forth, the entire earth will take notice. And I just cannot see how some believe that the, they have labeled this rapture as a silent rapture, where saints just sort of silently slip away. That cannot be. This will be a day in human history on par with the worldwide flood in Noah's day. Every corner of the earth will be put on alert, will take notice as saints are raptured up and Christ descends. Uh, forever the world will live differently after this day. And this is not the only arresting event here. We still have Act 2 and Act 3. Act 2 is the dead will rise. That's verse second half of verse 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ obviously is referring to believers who have died. 
those who have died while in a relationship, while in union with Christ, believers in Christ. So the scope of those people who will be raised on that day are those who have died as believers. We also know that unbelievers will be resurrected one day, but not on this day. For example, Paul, in reference to the governor Felix in Acts 24.15 says, There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Jesus also referred to this in John 5. He said the unbelieving are waiting a resurrection of judgment. So every human will be resurrected. It's just a resurrected into what? Into glory or into a judgment? So unbelievers will have their future day. Their bodies, but bodies of deceased saints will be resurrected on this day when Christ returns. The dead in Christ will rise. And although these events sort of unfold almost simultaneously, it seems that for a brief moment, perhaps for just a few seconds, these raptured saints will be with us on the earth. Those who are alive and remaining will suddenly be accompanied by resurrected saints on that day. And then, and then, the dead in Christ will rise. They'll be resurrected. That's Acts 2. And notice how Paul puts an adverb at the end of this. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then he says in the very next verse, in verse 15, we find the next step. Then. Paul's putting these adverbs together for a reason. He says, first, then. And in doing so, Paul is giving greater emphasis to the timing of these events, how they relate to one another. That's his goal because that was the concern there in Thessalonica. They didn't understand how these events would happen together. So this is act two, the dead will rise. So first the Lord descends, then the dead will rise, and then act three, the saints will be raptured. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Act 3 is the rapture itself. Indeed, from this verse here, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, this is where we get the term rapture. The Greek word translated here as caught up is literally harpazo. And in the Latin, it's referred to as rapturo, from which we get our English word rapture. So the verb literally means to snatch up or to seize, to take something suddenly and vehemently. And the words denote a sudden, forcible seizure of something, an irresistible act of catching away due to divine activity. So this could be rendered as snatch up or sweep up or carry off by force. In Acts 8.39, we find a similar usage of this word. After Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip was raptured in a sense. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Peter away, our Bibles say, and the eunuch saw him no longer. Paul had a similar experience in 2 Corinthians 12 where he was raptured up into heaven where Christ revealed to him heavenly mysteries. And so on that day, this snatching up will include both those who are alive at Christ's return and those who have just recently been resurrected. Both groups will be raptured in unison together. 
the text says they'll be raptured together with them. As one unified group, the resurrected dead and the living will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And in this moment, we will also receive our glorified bodies. Paul does not mention that here, but he does over in 1 Corinthians 15. I'd love for you to see this. Turn with me to the left in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, thinking about our new glorified bodies. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50. Paul writes this, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. We will put on immortal bodies, imperishable bodies, bodies that can no longer die, bodies that are no longer plagued with infirmity, bodies that can no longer sin, most importantly. Now, this is the future reality that we often refer to as glorification, when, when the body of believers will be made perfect. And the end and the result of all of this will be, this will be the last day that there will be any sin coming from the church against God. This will be the end of sin from God's people. Now this was when we will finally be res rescued from our bodies of death, as Paul refers to it in Romans 7, and given bodies of life. This is when we will experience salvation to its fullest extent. extent complete entire redemption of all of us and as we sort of make our way back to first thessalonians i want to just hit one other passage look at philippians chapter 3 we see him also paul here also touching on glorification philippians chapter 3 look at verse 20 he says this for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So our bodies will be transformed. They will be made like the resurrected body of Christ, his glorious body. I, I suspect that when those, those who have died in Christ are resurrected, they will immediately have this new glorified body. Those who are living and remain at, the Christ, at Christ's return, they will receive their body as they're caught up into the air, snatched up. That's what is going on in 1 Thessalonians 4. Turn back there with me. This glorification of the body, this is included in Acts 3, or in Act 3, excuse me. This is when this happens. It's the third act of the drama of Christ's return. When we are raptured, we are caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the clouds, in the air. 
So with glorified bodies, we will meet the Lord in the air. We'll sort of be suspended in the sky with our Savior. And I suspect in the plain sight of the unbelieving world, there will be, imagine it, a great cloud, great crowd of believers in the air that day. A great gathering of the church. Indeed, from this point on, there'll be no more churches, plural. There will be one church. And she will all be gathered in the air, suspended in the sky to meet the Lord. This will be the bride of Christ in all her glory presented to the king. The church, having been sanctified throughout her life on the earth by the washing of the water with the, earth, with the word, will be presented to Christ by himself in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but she will be holy and blameless. This is when Christ will receive his glorified bride. They will, she, she will be there for him in the air. And what is the result of all of this? What is the result of the coming of the Lord? We've seen the equality of Christ's return, the drama of Christ's return, and now the result of it. Look at verse 17. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That's the result. That's the end game for Paul. We will forever be with our Savior. In glorified bodies, on that day, there'll be no more sinful interference in our relationship with Christ. Our communion with him will be fully perfect on that day. Just perfect union, perfect togetherness with our Savior. And where we go next, or what we do next, does not even seem to be a thought on Paul's mind. It seems that both he and the church in Thessalonica were not looking past this meeting in the sky one bit. And I can assure you, on this day, when we meet the Lord in the air, all our theology around the rapture will be instantaneously corrected. And I can assure you that any wrong views will be so quickly forsaken and scrapped and left in the trash heap of human opinions and ideas, and no one will even have the slightest regret. There will be no looking back, no backseat driving with Christ on that day, saying, oh, Christ, didn't, didn't you mean to come back down? Or No, there'll be none of that. We'll be with him, and that's all we will care about. We will be enthralled in his glorious presence, overtaken by the one whom our soul loves. We will be raptured up in every sense of the term. We will be with him. And then Paul concludes with a final exhortation in verse 18. He, this is the exhortation in light of Christ's return. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In the face of death, in the face of all the confusion that existed there in Thessalonica around the return of Christ, and that fear that some would miss out on the return of Christ, Paul gave these words. Paul gave this truth. He says here that we are to take these words and comfort one another with them. Uh, apply them to one another. The church is called to take the truth revealed in Scripture and then to apply it to sort of minister it to one another. We are to remind one another of these things. So this is sort of ready-made funeral encouragement. This is what we should say to one another when we're thinking about those who die, when we're mourning and grieving over those who have 
died and have gone out from us, we should, when we witness one of our beloved brothers and sisters depart from this life and when we lay their bodies in the grave, we can assure one another, you know, we'll see them again. We will see them again soon enough. It won't be long now and our Savior will come back for us. We know that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise. And then we will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with them. These are not speculations. This is human history given to us in advance before it happens. So as we await Christ's return, we remind one another of this biblical truth. We live in light of the truth revealed in Scripture. We are guided and encouraged by the truth. So this is our hope. The return of Christ, the rapture of the church. And really the only thing left for us to consider is, will you be there on that day? When the saints are caught up, when the dead are resurrected in Christ, will you be there? Will you be resurrected? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you believed and trusted in him? Only those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been united with him will be resurrected and raptured on that day. And you must be there. And so we have this life to believe in him, to trust in Christ he is our only hope. He's the only thing that makes this life rational, and you must trust in him. He is our great hope. Surrender your life to him so that you will be prepared for this great day, so that you can join us with the, in the resurrection of the saints and the rapture of the church. We do not want you to miss it. You must believe in this Savior and in this saving gospel that he has given us. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth revealed. We thank you for this great coming day. Uh, Lord, it is fantastic. It's amazing. Thinking of Christ coming in the air and making such vibrant noises in the sky, shouting, awakening the dead, the trumpet blast of God, an archangel speaking, all of these things, they're just otherworldly to us, and I think the temptation is to write them off, but this is a reality that will occur. Help us to believe these things. Help us to live in light of these things. Help our entire worldview to be shaped by these things. One day you will return for your bride. Those who have died in Christ will be resurrected, and we long for that day, whether we're alive or whether we die Either way, we know we'll be there because you've revealed it in your word. So help us to trust these things. Help us to live in light of it. And we pray for our friends, our family who do not know Christ. God, please draw them to yourself. Anyone here who does not know Christ, who has not been born again, please draw them to yourself. Lord, would they be with us on that day when he shall come with trumpet sound? Would then each of us in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before your throne. That's our hope. We long for that day, and we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.